the challenge of patients bringing their sleep data or their heart rate data, um, you know, it raises a lot of uh, a, a lot of questions because because the doctor even of today just isn't prepared to manage all this data. They don't even know how what to do with it or what it means. And so there's this clash going on as patients collect their information and docs, they're not trained to do it. The classic example is 23andMe. Um, patient comes in with some marker, some family doc in you know, Georgetown doesn't know what this means and it's a problem. As you know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, at Point Health, we are focused on making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. As we launched Point Health, we wanted to share what we learned during the process of building the company. So we started this podcast where we are lucky enough to talk with some of the best minds in healthcare technology. Today, I am here with our Chief Legal Officer, Mark Camaro, and we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Brian Vardabedian, aka Dr. V. Uh, he is an author, blogger, tweeter, physician, leader, kind of rhymed, uh, at Texas Children's Hospital, uh, and really, honestly, just an all-around good guy uh, who I am personally a big fan of. So really excited to have you. So thanks for, for joining us, Dr. V. Oh, great to be here. Well, I will give a uh, probably incomplete bio, but give you a little bit of, a, of an intro so people know more about you, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into the questions. So to start it off... Dr. Vardabedian is a physician leader and writer covering the intersection of medicine, technology, and culture. He is an influential voice in healthcare who recognizes how technology is changing the way patients are cared for and engaged with. Uh, he currently does a lot. He works at the, as the Director of Community Medicine for the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition for Texas Children's Hospital. He's also a full-time faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine, Sikkim, where he has driven programs and policies surrounding technology and medicine and developed the country's first longitudinal curriculum for digital communication in undergraduate medical education. Uh, he is passionate about communicating medical information in a way his patients understand, and he is the founder of 33 Charts, uh, which has come to serve physicians transitioning to the digital world uh, and is read daily by thousands of healthcare influencers seeking a fresh and focused look at technology and its impact on medicine. And I, I am a subscriber to 33 Charts, and if you're listening and you're not go check it out uh great great content from from dr v and you know there's probably 10 things we didn't even say in that bio but we'll get to them in the conversation so why don't we just start it off dr v with a with maybe a more personal question you're originally from massachusetts i think i saw you went to umass um how did you decide on baylor college of medicine in houston for your internship and residency yeah boy it was a while ago i have to think back uh <laughs> you know i grew up in new england uh i think i met some really cool folks during my uh my time in uh, at UMass Medical School in Worcester, some folks came to visit from Texas Children's. They said this is the largest children's hospital in the U.S. And I said, "Heck, let's just get out of get out of the Northeast, go south." And met my wife. And as you know, by Texas law, if you marry a Texas woman, you can't leave the state. So I wound up staying. So. <laughs> that is true. That is, we can we can double check that with Mark legal legal counsel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And as I married a Texas woman, I can agree. I am now bound forever to be stuck in the state of Texas. So yes, that You're is correct. You're lucky, lucky enough to be in this beautiful state. And my, my wife always reminds me uh, that I'm a Yankee, like every day. So. <laughs> well, you're like a Red Sox. Would that have been your team if you're in Boston? Yeah. 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 Uh, I grew up with the Red Sox. I kind of adopted the Astros, but. Uh, we brought you over to the dark side. Yeah. Yeah. We're right. going to go to a game. 
yes, we, we need to do that. But seriously, Texas Children's has been great for me. Uh, I've been able to sort of uh, cut my teeth in uh, healthcare leadership. And um, we're actually now building a children's hospital in Austin, which is kind of exciting. So um, I've had the rare opportunity of a uh, physician leader by uh, uh, seeing a hospital go from the ground up in the woodlands. And uh, we're building one in Austin. And so uh, it's been a rare experience for me. So it's been good for me. Yeah, no, I, that's awesome. I saw um, I saw that that hospital is coming in over here in Austin, which is really interesting. Uh, and I'm excited to see it happen. I think, you know, that, that we, we need it. Um, and I love that you've gotten really involved with the kind of healthcare technology community in Houston. You know, you've done a lot there. And, and the medical center is, is, a, is a huge area. How's it been for you getting kind of connected with, you know, the that community there and, and really getting to know some of the some of the exciting things that are happening? It's been a lot of fun. Watching TMCX take off has been interesting. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges for TMCX is taking these, these cohorts of startups and uh, trying to uh, connect them with the Texas Medical Center hospitals. Um, you know, the most hospitals aren't really well adapted to uh, taking in uh, new technology, new startups and working with them in the hospitals. A lot that goes on legally and in terms of a licensing and, and all that. And so that's probably been the biggest hang up in Houston is we're getting these great startups into Texas Children's or Methodist and uh, mm-hmm. the wheels are finally starting to turn. And so it's kind of exciting to see that happen. You, you talked about technology there. Um, and I know that's a big part of, of what you do. I also wanted to ask about maybe this is some of the old school stuff. I, I've heard you've become known for your whiteboard sessions. Uh, I, even see, I think I saw some Google reviews about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that entails and how you you know work with your patients to help them understand their situation and, and how that goes? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know how it started, but I think uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, we had an extra whiteboard kicking around the office. I stuck into one of my exam rooms and uh, started centering my visits around the whiteboard. And uh, so the way it works is I take a history and Afterwards, I summarize it on the board and draw pictures and images and uh, write the plan on there. And one thing that was really interesting that I noticed from, from right from the beginning was mothers would pick their phones up and start taking pictures of this. <laughs> and uh, it really turned into a thing for me. And people have called me and said, how do you do this? And so on and so forth. And uh, some docs say, well, I do this on the paper on the exam room table. And uh, I think the difference is centering the 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 visit around that whiteboard and uh, clearly writing down the plan and all that is so intentional. And so um, it's been an interesting ride and uh, it kind of puts that center on education, which I think is really central to the clinical encounter. Do you, have you ever considered bringing in the technology there and having like a digital whiteboard that you could share or is it old school? Yeah. People have asked me about that. And uh, you know, there are these whiteboards that translate onto a digital space. And I, uh, I haven't done that yet, but, you know, this, there's something raw about the, the you know, the, the dry erase board and scribbling and sometimes the kids get involved. And so it's a lot of fun. The Mayo Clinic even called. They said, what are you doing with these things? I need <laughs> to do a study or something like that. So, hey, maybe you're on to something. It's so simple. It's just so simple. It's not like high tech. And and that's where I think it's it's uh it, it is popular, right? Because we get so inundated with technology and doing everything that the. the the, the digital yeah. way that sometimes you go back to an old school medium like a whiteboard, which again I love as well. I have one right here off the side of my desk that I stare at constantly. Uh, it's refreshing um, to just see old school technology come back, and and sometimes you just you just can't beat it. 
Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you a funny thing that's happened a few times. Uh, so my document, my medical documentation has improved over the past five <laughs> years due to some uh, quality efforts at Texas Children's Hospital. But there was a time when my documentation was not as good as it was today. And um, I've had a number of situations where I have a patient come back and follow up. And my note, which I complete six hours after the visit sometimes, is not as detailed as the picture. Yeah. And so the mama will sh- pick up her phone and show me. And I'll look at the picture. And I'll say, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And it's kind of an embarrassing disclosure, but it's sort of an interesting way. Uh, it just, you know, it just tells us how sometimes a visual image gives you a, like a better snapshot of what you're going to do. Your kind of work covers a, a, a big gamut of, of, of items, especially in your bio, which I do like. It talks about the intersection of medicine, technology, culture. Um, and also, if, like Stephen said earlier, big fan of your uh, newsletter, uh, 33 Charts. And again, if, if people don't have access to that, sign up uh, and make sure to get those delivered to your inbox. They are great. Um, but with respect to, your, to the intersection of, of medicine, technology, culture, um, what does really that mean for you in the actual practice of, of medicine? And, and how do you incorporate that into the practice of medicine? Yeah, you know, I kind of, uh, Mark, I kind of, I kind of don't. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a unicorn in that. Um, uh, what I, what I do with my blog and what I do on social media is kind of unrelated to my day-to-day work. So a lot of docs on Twitter are tweeting about their research, and I don't think in ten years I've talked very much about digestive health in children. I should, and. <laughs> I don't, but what I'm really fascinated about is all these changes that are happening around us with technology and healthcare. Um, you know, and I'm kind of obsessed with thinking about how just that mother taking that picture of that whiteboard is changing the way we have an interaction. Um, a lot of what I used to do with my eyes and my ears and my hands as a doctor is now being completely replaced by imaging technology, um, advanced practitioners, can now, because of this, do a lot of what I used to do. And so doctors are being completely redefined. Technology is defining and redefining who we are. And so for me, we're undergoing this really radical change in medicine that hasn't been seen in a couple of hundred years, honestly. And so watching that and observe, you know, watching it and observing it and sort of uh, narrating what's happening and trying to make sense of it is kind of what I do in the blog and a little bit on the newsletter. Um, so seeing those connections and how technology is changing medicine and changing culture is something I'm really kind of excited about. And that's what I do in my night job with the, with the blog. Man, I, I actually think it'd be awesome. You were talking about, you know, the mom taking the picture and the whiteboard and, and technology. It would be really cool if that stuff could be dropped into the note. And I think about like open notes and some of the stuff like Liz saw me and all those folks are doing. Yeah, that would be like if there was a way for some of that stuff to get pulled into one place. And then as a parent, like I'm a parent of three. If I could go and see that. I would love that. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting that the, the pictures uh, before we could really put images into Epic, which we can do now and we're starting to do. Uh, there were concerns, <clears throat> uh, Mark, honestly, from a legal perspective, mm-hmm. that what we were uh, that whiteboard was a piece of documentation that wasn't mm-hmm. in the medical record. and It was going right. on mama's phone. And like I even disclosed, there are some things that maybe I forgot in my notes six hours later. Uh, so anyway, that's that's like a, it's a, a tangent. But the, the whole patient thing, uh, uh, Steve, is interesting. Yeah. Um, 
you know, be, because uh, open notes is a whole other thing. And 21st Century Cures Act is, yeah. it's, it's, that's another thing that's changing. And, and it's, it's, it's redefining what doctors do and how we document. Well, that, I read your, I think you wrote like a pretty extensive blog on the 21st Century Cures Act. And I think you're the one who mm-hmm. put that together. And reading it was actually really helpful for me to understand what it even meant. Yeah. Uh, but you know, obviously we're a technology company here at point health and that's something we care about. And so I did want to get into that. Um, you know, technology is changing everything. It's changed our lives. Like everybody knows that. Um, in your opinion, how, how, how can technology play a role in improving how patients interact with the healthcare system, both broadly, right? You know, finding care, um, but also more specifically when they're actually directly interacting with their doctor. Um, I think, you know, the, probably the biggest broadest change that we're probably seeing with with technology changing the encounter is you know even as recently as 20 years ago our interaction with the healthcare system was a once a year physical right you go to the yeah. doctor doc listens with a stethoscope and you go home and tell your wife you passed your physical right <laughs> and things have advanced so much further now that our engagement and i think it's going to evolve this way and the ehr is going to evolve this way that our interaction with the uh, with the healthcare system is really going to occur on a continuum. It's not going to be a once a year visit. It's going to be sort of an ongoing interaction mm-hmm. with data and feedback and all that sort of thing. So I think that's that interface is of, of, a, of a continuum of care rather than a once a year visit is, is the biggest change we're going to see, I think, in the future. You know, I think that's interesting. And that goes along with like the wellness movement, you know, tracking and and. I, like I have an Apple Watch, and I—I I mean, I know you're an Apple fanboy. I am too. Uh, I saw your your post about the AirTags, um, and, and and I think sometimes, you know, is that good or bad? Like, are we over tracking ourselves? Do we just take that data and say, "Hey, yeah. Doctor V, like, what do I do with all this data?" Uh, how do how do you feel about that as a doctor when your patients are are tracking all this stuff and you know they're saying, "Hey, wh- what do I do?" Like, who? How does that how does that work? Well, you know, there's there's a lot there. What you just said. I mean, obviously, the challenge of patients bring in their sleep data yeah. or their heart rate data, um, you know, it raises a lot of, uh, a, a lot of questions because, because the doctor even of today just isn't prepared to manage all this data. They don't even know how, what to do with it or what it means. And so there's this clash going on as patients collect their information and docs, they're not trained to do it. The classic example is 23 and me. Yeah. Um, patient comes in with some marker some family doc in, you know, Georgetown doesn't know what this means and it's a problem. You know, from a, from a legal perspective, obviously the, the change in how, uh, how medicine is done with technology brings a a whole slew of uh, additional challenges that we obviously need to need to tackle. Um, and, and yes, there are many positive changes, but as a, as a pessimistic lawyer, I'm always looking at, you know, the, uh, the parade of horribles that could possibly happen. Um, so, you know, from your perspective, um, obviously technology brought a lot of positive change, but are there any changes that you, you know, aren't as excited about, or maybe would even classify as a negative um, with with kind of how technology has has infiltrated and really become a part of of a daily practice. Yeah, I mean, I think the the the, the biggest categorical thing is that technology really kind of separates us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to what I said about stuff being done with our eyes and our ears and our hands, obviously we're sticking patients into scanners and uh, doing liquid biopsies and things like this to. Um, to diagnose patients. And so 
everything's separated from us. Even, even when we're in the same exam room with the patient, uh, the EHR uh, is sort of a barrier between the patient and the doc. And so I think we're, uh, as, as technology mediates more and more of what we do, we're becoming more removed from patients, which has a consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing technology is doing is as it's making us as docs and advanced practitioners very reductionist. I had this experience with my dad at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, he passed away uh, two years ago from skin cancer. And um, he, we, we had the hardest time uh, getting him hooked into uh, end-of-life care and hospice because the, the system really wanted to keep going forward with more and more yeah. Uh, chemo based on the markers on his tumor. They knew everything about the markers on his tumor, but they didn't know exactly that my dad just wanted to go home with his three sons and look at photo albums. And so all this technology and reductionism is got us separated from sort of the human agenda. And that's kind of the biggest consequence, I think, that's going to it's going to be a challenge going forward over the next hundred years, I think, getting back to human connection and the power of that. Yeah, that end-of-life care is a tough uh it's a tough time and it's a challenge to, yeah. to know how, like what are people's wishes and what do they want? And, and, you know, the patient doesn't always know how, how things are going to play out. They, they haven't been there. Whereas a doctor might share some guidance to say, I've seen this happen and you, you may not want to go down that road. Yeah. The challenge. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think there's going to be sort of this renaissance of human connection. I suspect right. uh, if you take the EHR, for example, I think if we look at the emergence of voice first interface. Uh, there's some interesting companies that can, uh, listen to an ambient conversation between the doc and a patient and form the, the, the note. And so that's a great example of how technology will flip and reconnect us and allow us to have conversations where the doc's not staring at the screen. You know, Dr. V, while, while we have you here, I, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on going right off this, this road here. What are your thoughts on, on artificial intelligence and machine learning in, in the practice of modern medicine? Well, you know, I think a lot of the discussion around uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning centers on this uh, generalized artificial intelligence or the idea of a robot coming in and doing everything. Um, I, I think that um, obviously artificial intelligence can play a huge role in assimilating data and assisting us. And I think, uh, um, you know, it's going to play a bigger role in, in partnering with us. Watson did that nicely. I mean, Watson was sort of a tap on the shoulder uh, for docs when they were caring for someone and, and brought them information that was related to what was happening uh, to that patient. And it failed for a number of reasons at MD Anderson mm-hmm. and other places. But uh, I think it's going to play this associate or connected role to what we're doing. And we're a long way from it really taking over what we do. Um, so I mean, robotic surgery is another thing. It's uh, um, you know, early on detractors and old school surgeons were, were skeptical, but it's playing a bigger role and uh, the benefits are starting to be seen. And so, um, it's interesting. So yeah, intuitive surgery used to be a client of mine, actually, when I worked at W2O, the agency, uh, so we did a lot of work with them on the Da Vinci robot and I got pretty intimately involved in that. And it's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, there are detractors to that. And one of the things we yeah. did was listen to online conversation and there were some really uh, interesting conversations to be had around it. Um, I think there, there's a lot of good, right. That can come from it, but also obviously some, some other things there. Um, okay. Moving, moving, or did you have a comment? 
yeah, I was going to say that one of the things that's so interesting about docs with all this technology and robotics and AI yeah. is there's there's a lot of fear mm-hmm. uh, of of us losing our autonomy, which has already happened. And I think as a as a profession, it's really important that we sort of embrace this, be part of shaping it, rather than trying to fight it. Yeah, you said the best great. point earlier uh, is that there's there is there is, and I, I do see it in in many professions that that have have gone a heavy shift in the technology. Right, there is this renaissance to coming back to just dealing with a person is very important, and and just you know communicating with a person directly, and forgetting about all the other mediums and all the other cool fancy toys we can play with. Um, that, that especially in medicine, right? I mean, that's really yeah. where you have that deep, deep connection with your your patient. And uh, agreed, it, it is it's it's amazing to see what we've done and what we can do and what we've accomplished so far, but. Uh, I, I find it comforting that people uh, aren't necessarily losing sight of that human factor and that that, uh, you know, your opinion that we're, we're kind of seeing that back again is actually is a really, really good thing. And I'm glad to see or glad to hear that that's kind of your observation about what is what is going on currently in the practice. So I, I also wanted to ask um about some of the other things that you do in healthcare. So you're the associate director and co-founder of the Medical Futures Lab at Rice. Uh, Go Owls as well, another great Houston institution, uh, which is a, a multidisciplinary collab- collaboration dedicated to studying and understanding medicine at its evolving intersection with technology, which fits right with what we've been talking about. Um, it sounds awesome, one. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that? Like, what, what is it and why you co-founded it? Yeah, um, it, it's, uh, it is... It- basically a loose organization between Baylor College of Medicine and Rice University uh, that myself and Kirsten Austere uh, started. And um, we teach courses on uh, digital health and society and a lot of these things that we've been talking about here. Uh, and so we've been centered on um, kind of these courses, uh, programs that we give in the TMC community, as well as some um, um some other things that we do in activities to try to raise awareness about how technology is impacting, uh, uh, you know, all, all the things we've been talking about today. So uh, we, we co-share it. So it's kind of interesting. We, we co-teach uh, a course at Rice uh, probably every two or three semesters. And so uh, it's really interesting uh, when I tell people I'm teaching in the Department of English because that's really central <laughs> to the Department of English at Rice. Man, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a really cool. I wish I had the chance to take those classes when I was in school. Yeah, we'll have you down once we 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 put on seminars and whatnot. We'll have you down. You can from Austin. Oh, I'm in. We'll do hey, not Astros game at the same time. Give me give me a call. I'm there. You, you know, it's not it's not. I'll take the Vaughn Lane. I'll drive over. I'll be there. You just let me know when. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can pay for dinner. All right, it's on Point Hell. Exactly. Yes. Well, wait. I'll maybe Stephen. We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, obviously, uh, you know. It, Dr. V, you, you just aren't busy enough um, between um, your work with the Medical Futures Lab, your your work on, on Twitter, your newsletter. Um, you know, in addition, I believe uh, you're also on the advisory board of Stanford's uh, Medicine X Conference. You are a founding advisor uh, to the healthcare track at the uh, South by Southwest uh, Interactive Festival. So it, it's fair to say you, um, you, know, you, you keep a pretty full agenda. So seeing everything that you see and, and kind of having your hands in a lot of different areas, um, what are you kind of most excited about right now that's going on in the, uh, in the healthcare startup space? 
Um, there's been some, you know, we have some some good fun facts uh, as far as like recent funding. Um, for example, Q most recently Q1 2021, we closed uh, with 6.7 billion dollars in uh, digital health funding, um, and that's the most funded quarter uh, to date uh, ever. Um, so, so what do you, what what excites you about this? And I uh, know, do you have any concerns about a lot of uh, a lot of this money going into uh, healthcare startup uh, and the healthcare tech space? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably, I mean, there's a lot of exciting things happening. Um, you know, just yesterday, I had a patient with Crohn's disease that I had to uh, start on Remicade and. Uh, um, Increasingly, we're moving to treating these patients in the home setting. We're, we're, we're gearing up for that, not quite there yet, but insurance companies are kind of forcing us to bring more and more care into the home. And that's one of the things that's kind of one of the most exciting uh, areas, because I think as telehealth evolves and we can do more uh, at home, um, that's, that's going to kind of be exciting. People are getting older. Uh, the senior space is very interesting. Uh, Papa Health is kind of an interesting startup that connects... Uh, uh, it's like an Uber for uh, seniors and college students and connects them. And um, I think it's a great use of uh, how technology can connect to uh, seniors in a way that really can make a difference. Uh, Uno Health does the same thing with Medicare and finds services for them uh, that uh, where they fall between the cracks and things like that. And so um, that's that's probably the most interesting area of how, how we're going to be moving more and more healthcare at, at home and the stuff that we traditionally do at the hospitals is going to be there. Um, I have some reservations about all this, uh, this growth in, in, in the startup world with healthcare too, but um, a lot of good stuff happening too. What do you think is going to happen with all these startups? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of startups that are, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal article earlier, and I obviously read that one as well on, uh, I think it was on Care Navigation, which is close to home for me because that is something we do. But I'm, I'm kind of curious what's going to happen. There's so many different platforms and startups and there's so much happening yeah. in healthcare. But like, like, uh, like, you know, do they all come together and form one massive healthcare startup? I, I'm right. just curious where you see all this going. It's yeah, so odd. You know, I think the our biggest challenge in healthcare, U.S. healthcare certainly, is that we pay, you know, doc, systems and doctors get paid for doing more things to people. And so it's really, really expensive. Yeah. And, uh, and so we've got these startups. A lot of them are trying to, create these marginal savings, whereas the, you know, it's like the deck, uh, the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, we're arranging them with these minor cost savings when the system is really just broken. And so this massive investment that you you cited in, in healthcare startups really speaks to the fact that third-party payers are desperate to, you know, to acquire these as, as these ways to kind of superficially help fix things when, in fact, the, the system's kind of broken, I think. I mean, that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. I, I, I try not to do it every time, but we end up going down the road of the fee-for-service model and value-based care and like, why is it the way that it is? Right. And, you know, a lot of people we talk to have maybe a lean toward, we need to reduce costs in healthcare because it's out of control and it's, you know, 20% of GDP. And like the hard part is you hit people's wallets and their bank accounts and you're there. there's like a ton of things you can go down on, on that road. Um, but I, I think most people would agree that healthcare has gotten a little out of control, right? And it, the, the costs, the, I mean, even most doctors, like I, maybe you can tell me this, but I think a lot of doctors I talk to are, my dad is, is a dentist and he is, they're so frustrated with dealing with insurance companies and they're dealing with, you know, regulations. And it just seems like everyone's a little bit frustrated. Yeah, it's nuts. And, you know, the, the, the 
biggest the biggest heartbreak I see are middle class families yeah. who they, they fall between the cracks. Okay. They 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 have this high deductible plan. Yeah. Their 14 year old gets diagnosed with Crohn's and they can't afford the Remicade. And they're paying through the nose for this insurance. And it's it's yeah. it's, it's nuts. And so I spent half my days trying to negotiate these sorts of things to make up for the deficiencies in the system. So it's it's incredibly frustrating. Um yeah, I mean that's something that we you hit on. It's, we obviously, as I said, we want to make healthcare easier to find, understand, and afford, and that's very much aligned with what you're saying. And you know, we can't necessarily help with Remicade immediately because that's a particularly difficult situation. But right. one thing we do try to do, and that you know, with the application we'll be rolling out, is to help patients at least like compare costs in their area, begin to compare, you know, some of the quality metrics. I know that's a tough one because how do you measure quality? But you know, we're trying to figure out a way to help a patient or mom, you know, who's, who's trying to find care compare these options, see what it's actually going to cost her. What's it going to cost her on the cash pay price? What's it going to cost on the insurance price? Um, so that she can make, you know, an informed decision. And, and I think that right. that's ultimately where we'd like to land is being able to help folks avoid the situation where they get a hundred thousand dollar medical bill and they just don't know what to do. Um, it's, in- it's interesting to see patients have this capacity to take some control of their health care. Yeah good rx and and this ability to sort of choose and make intelligent decisions you know one big change i've noticed over the past decade Stephen, is uh, patients used to be you know the american healthcare consumer wanted everything done and wanted yeah uh yeah they, give me it all you know, yeah en- endless you know <laughs> health at any cost and i think I'm, I'm seeing consumers get smarter and understanding that's not possible especially when it's cost sharing it's amazing when a family has the care percentage, they'll start asking questions about the plan and whether we can do it less cost in a less costly way. You have to, yeah. I mean, you mentioned high deductible plans. There's you know healthcare sharing. There's 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 kind of these limited med- med- limited benefit plans and discount plans. And there's all these things yeah. out there where where yeah, I mean, patients end up with a pretty large chunk of you know skin in the game or out of pocket costs. And those are the ones I think that we can help the most. I mean. You know the ones that that do have that uh, skin in the game and 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 need to understand the cost. You know you can't just say, you know, like you said, do it all and I'll get the bill later because people know now that if they do that, they're going to be in trouble. Um, hey Stephen, educate me. So if if I'm a uh, healthcare professional in a large system and I want to use y'all's service. Is that a, an enterprise contract or a patient's? Yeah. Who's your customer? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's actually one I sent an email last night about this to some of the team. We historically, the services we've provided have been uh, healthcare navigation and bill negotiation, human driven. So we have a team of patient advocates who help you know patients who get in the situation um, where they have a large bill or help them find care before that, you know, that's in network and that will, will be a good fit for what they need. Uh, and so we always have, have provided that to any really group that provides coverage. So that could be an employer, that could be a health plan, that could be a health sharing organization, that could be, a, as I mentioned, a discount plan or a limited benefit plan. Um, it often fits well with the plans where the member does have a higher a higher stake in the game. And so that's historically how we've how we've provided care our services. So we have an application that we're we're releasing, um, which will be kind of the front line for those members. So that instead of having to call us, they can just pull up the phone and say, you know, I need a colonoscopy in my area, and it'll pull up prices that are publicly available for them in that area. Um, we have also been exploring, and I, you know, I probably can't share everything here, but what would that look like to provide kind of a free version of that for any patient who who wanted to compare, uh, you know, what, what's in their area? We've also been looking at for providers and physicians, both individual practices like my dad or someone who works at a larger practice. How can they, you know, ensure that their information is correct in there? 
and that when someone's searching, they're actually finding an accurate, you know, uh, uh, cost estimate and accurate information for that provider. So, so that's how we sell it right now. It's through groups that provide coverage, which is kind of a okay. broad answer. Um, but we're also really actively trying to trying to see how we can provide a similar service to to individual patients. If there's like a different way to monetize that or what that might look like um, to make it work. Does that, does that answer your question? So kind of, kind of in the same way the second MD sells their services yeah. to yeah. you know, Mobile Exxon or whatever. Yeah, if you think of like an accolade, or th there's a lot of care navigation groups out there. A lot of them focus more on chronic conditions. So like diabetes, like Livongo. Uh, we actually had a yeah. call with Lee Shapiro. You talk, talked with him about some of the stuff they're doing and we're doing. And um, what we've seen is, I don't have the stat in front of me right now. There's actually a larger portion of, of spend on acute conditions. Um, mm -hmm. That could be redirected or, um, you know, navigation could be provided to those acute conditions to avoid some of those really high cost bills or claims that come in um, that end up affecting the patient. So so that's, I think, maybe where we have a bit of a different spin and we're really trying to pull a lot of this, you know, the price transparency information um, that's out there in, in, in so that we can help patients navigate that. Yeah, this is an amazing space because, you know, patients, if, if you work in a large system, these patients get this diagnosis and they're yeah. sort of they're they're floating in the breeze you know after that because this, this the systems that don't provide that service of, of connecting yeah and so it's tremendous yeah and and we do we so you mentioned GoodRx. i love them we have a partnership with rx saver very similar and within the app you can type in whatever medication and it'll find the prices in your area some of those specialty ones that's the hard one though you know if you're looking for right, right. amlodipine or norvas or whatever like you're going to find some great deals in your area but when you're trying to find a, a specialty or rare disease medication, those are a little bit trickier and require more creativity. And so when there's a situation like that, that's where our human navigators come in. You call them and you know we, we can try to work with them to figure something out, um, much like you do probably with your patients. I love humans. I mean, I yeah. think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's some things that you just really want, you know, in customer service, you want to talk to a person yeah. and you really need someone to understand the nuance, right? Oh, I, I, I 100% agree. Uh, especially when it's as important as, you know, your kid's health. I, I think you're, you're spot yes. on. Um, well, you know, I, I, I think we're getting close to the end here. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I, I, I did, I did want to ask, uh, one more question. I, I, I think I, lo I love that you, you're also an author, uh, and then you published a book and I love, I just love the title. I want to say it looking out for number two, a slightly irreverent guide to poo gas and other things that come out of your baby. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> great title uh you, with all the other stuff you do like how do, how do you find time to write a book and and do you get any interesting reader mail about baby poo that you know some, i don't know so my my biggest challenge is on uh epic is the pictures of uh dirty diapers that patients send in constantly <laughs> oh goodness uh, I, it's i i joke uh, i i'm not kidding or in the office patients will bring in uh laptops they'll open their laptop and they'll make me endure all these pictures of the baby's diapers. So, um, you know, part of looking out for number two, what drove that was uh, this obsession that parents had with baby's bowel movements. And so uh, the book sold pretty well. It had a little lull initially, but it's got a little bit of a rebirth. And so it's, uh, um, you know, I, I, when you say finding time for this, I always say that I was a communicator that uh, kind of became a physician. Yeah. And so I love doing translation and that sort of thing. I probably won't do another parenting book again. I'm I'm really kind of fixated on all this uh, tech space, but it was a lot of fun to write. I'd love to see a book you wrote on on the tech space. I mean, like you know, the, the like as as you said earlier, what the 
connection between technology, medicine, and culture. That that would be a fun book I'd want to read. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. No one thinks about it. Everyone's got their nose to the grindstone and like, yeah. you know, no one's looking at the big picture. Yeah, no, that makes a difference. Well, awesome. Um, man, this was a blast. Uh, again, thanks so much for, for jumping on. Um, last thing I wanted to hit on really quickly was just uh, best place for folks to connect with you. I know you got 33 charts, you got Twitter. Where, where do you kind of send people? Yeah, you go to 33charts.com. Uh, you can hear from me every week by signing up for the newsletter, which is on the tab on the site. Um, I curate the, the most interesting things I find every week, and that's kind of fun. Occasionally send out long form articles. So you can start there. See me on Twitter uh, at Dr. Underscore V. Awesome. Well, I'm already a follower. If you, anyone isn't a follower, f- follow Dr. V. You, you won't regret it. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, we really enjoyed the conversation and hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Awesome. And that brings us to a close on this episode of the Point Health Podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with Dr. V today. He is truly one of my favorite people and a healthcare leader I look up to. Thanks to Dr. V for joining us uh, and being so open about his experiences in healthcare. I continue to learn from each of our guests and really enjoy these podcast conversations. Hope you do as well. We can't wait to share more episodes with health experts as we continue to build Point Health. Be sure to subscribe now so you get a heads up when future episodes drop. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.